for prison ministry. I hope that you'll come uh, Wednesday night and hear from them and hear about the, the things that the Lord is doing through that ministry and be able to pray for them in that. If you would, though, go for right now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as well as Numbers chapter 1. We're going to be starting a new series today uh, that is in line with what we have talked about as our theme, Serving a Holy God. And today we're kicking off uh, a new series in Numbers. In fact, my, my wife, my lovely, wonderful, encouraging wife, I, I made a comment that we were a little bit light today, and she looked at me and said, well, they heard you were preaching on Numbers. And I was like, thanks, babe. I appreciate that. But it's true, like we hear the book of Numbers and we kind of roll our eyes a lot of times, don't we? I had a friend of mine that I told him that we were going to start a sermon series out of the book of Numbers and he told me that Numbers is where a lot of New Year's resolutions go to die because a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year and they, you know, they get through the first couple books and they hit Numbers and they're like forget it. Like, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go to Matthew. Like, so uh, it, it's a complicated book. Um, I had another friend, I, I have encouraging friends, let me tell you. I had another friend that I told him that I was doing that and he sent, he very quickly sent me a link to an article about the top or the top 10 least favorite books in the Bible and numbers was like number two and he, Leviticus was number one. And I was like, thanks, bud. I appreciate that. Um, so it's it's a complicated book. It's a book that we don't know a lot about. It's got big numbers and big names and complicated, really weird rules. Like, wait till we get to the test for if you committed adultery or not. If you like, it, it is a weird. Okay, it's an odd book that we don't often understand, and yet it is. If we really dive into it, if we really take the time to study it. What we find is it is an amazing book that talks to us a great deal about how how we serve a holy God, how we serve this God who has called us out of great things, how we relate to him, how we worship him, how we act in obedience and the consequences of both disobedience and obedience. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But this morning, we're going to do kind of an introduction. We're going to cover chapter 1 as well, but we're going to kind of do an introduction to Numbers. And one of the best places to do that is in 1 Corinthians because Paul gives us a very direct statement about Numbers and kind of opens up the book and why we as New New Testament believers need to pour into this book and really study it well. And so hopefully by now you have found 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6, and then we'll flip over to Numbers chapter 1. So if you are able, if you would stand with us, that we may honor the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. It says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate then drank all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. All right, let's jump over to Numbers chapter 1, reading the first three verses there. 
The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we just want to acknowledge this morning. Lord, you don't need to be told this, but sometimes we need to say it out loud so we remember that you are a holy God. That you are a righteous God. And that we serve you as our king. We serve you as our Lord. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts this morning to your word. That we may understand how that is possible. How is it possible to serve a holy God? That we may understand the words that you have given us, the directions you have given us in this book, your very words breathed onto a page. Lord, I pray, Lord, do things that this morning that only your spirit can do. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I was doing research for this sermon series and as I was praying over it, I was looking at commentaries and one of the things that I often do as well is I look for sermons that other men have preached, other sermon series that other pastors have preached to glean from them knowledge that the Lord has given to them as well and to kind of use them as commentaries as well. And I began looking, normally that's a quite easy thing for me to do, but I began to look for people that had done sermon series in numbers and I realized that there were none. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what have I done? And finally I found a gentleman that had done one and I was really excited that I realized it was a Wednesday night series that he had done. It wasn't a Sunday morning thing. Um, but it was, kind of, it was kind of eye-opening for me. It's like, why have we neglected this book? Why have we as a people largely turned away there yes there are some difficult things to understand but there are some great things i mean we're going to look we're going to look at a passage where a donkey talks to its rider how do we ignore that we're going to look at stories where disobedience leads to the earth opening up and people falling through it that's fun stuff there are stories here that we need to know And the reason that we know that is because the New Testament on a regular basis quotes out of numbers. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. This was scripture for them. And so I want to begin before we go into numbers with great detail over the next several weeks for a long time, actually. But as we go into numbers in a little bit more detail, I want us to to grasp a hold of why we are taking this journey. I want us to understand a few things. And Paul does an excellent job of that in chapter 10. In verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In verse 11, which we didn't read, but you can skip down there a little bit. It says, now these things, and he's talking about things that directly happened in Numbers. Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the ages has come. Paul says that these things happened 
in history as an example for all that would come after. The things that happened to Israel in the wilderness happened so that the generations that came after them would see an example of, in most cases, how not to serve a holy God. On the flip side of that, or extending that even farther, maybe the better term there, to extend that even farther, Paul says, but they were written down, they were recorded for all time, so that we, the New Testament church, the one on, he says the age has come, he means the one who have seen Christ, that are on this side of Christ, that we may understand, that we may have an example, that we may not look like they did. When I was reading this and I was putting, I was thinking about that, I, I could not help but think of my sister. Many of you, I've, I've told stories, many of you were dying to speak to her about her side of all these stories. But one of the things that you may have picked up on is that Lisa is the golden child. Um, and rightly so. Like, I, I have to admit, Lisa was much better behaved than I was. She was a model child. Like, when Melissa and I think about having children, we pray Give us a Hannah and give us a Lisa. Whatever you do, Lord, please don't give us a Brian and a Melissa. Like, we pray that actively, all right? Because Lisa was just a model kid. And, and someone asked Lisa one time, like, why, why that was, why we always joked with her. And she said, very simply, I watched Brian do enough stupid things that I knew I didn't want to do that. That, that, was the re- that was the thing. She had watched me do stupid thing after stupid thing and suffer the consequences of those and in a very intelligent manner said, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. And therefore, she became the golden child, all right, the model citizen. In the same way, somewhat, we look at Israel, we should look at Israel and see the mistakes that they made. See the evil that they committed, Paul says, and we should walk away from it. We should say, I don't want those consequences. I want the blessings. I don't want the punishment. I want the grace. And we should desire to follow the Lord rightly rather than in the manner and chasing after idols the way that these folks did. We're going to see in this book them do all kinds of things. We're going to see them chase idols. We're going to see them grumble. We're going to see them just out and out disobey when God tells them to do something. And before we cast stones too far, we should understand how to identify those same, same things in our lives. You may say while we're reading numbers, well, I don't, I don't bow to an idol. I don't sacrifice young goats to a wooden statue. Yes, but... I guarantee you, you have idols. I have idols in my life that I have to constantly throw out with the trash. Whether it's our hobbies, whether it's our finances, whether it's our jobs, we all have idols that we sacrifice things to. All of us grumble at times. All of us have that moment when we don't understand what's going on in our lives and we begin to throw accusations around and wonder why we are where we are. So before we cast too many stones, before we get too far in our agitation at these Israelites, we better be able to identify it in ourselves and understand how to act differently than them. Take a cue from what, who they are and what they did. Paul goes on here, though, to tell us two unique things here that I want to point out in this passage. He says there 
in this passage at the very beginning. He says that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food. By the way, he's talking about manna there. He's talking about the food that they were given. All had the same, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. And then in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And by overthrown, he means they died. They died in the wilderness, most of them. Here's one of the things that we need to understand, and I've stated it in more of our terms than, than, and I'll explain here in a moment, but not all who are Christians, not all who are Christians, quote unquote, are saved. All of these individuals in the wilderness were Israelites. All of them had been called out of Egypt together. All of them had been baptized, so to speak, as they passed through the Red Sea. All of them had followed at some point the cloud that had gone before them, the symbol of God, the cloud before them. They had followed it as they went to Sinai and through the wilderness. All of them had ate the manna. All of them had drank from the rock that had been opened in the desert. All of them had seen the grace of God. All of them had seen the mercy of God. And yet for so many of them, their faith or their lack thereof was evidenced by their disobedience. And faith and disobedience don't go together. They can't go together. It doesn't mean that we don't occasionally screw up. I'm not saying perfection. But the the overwhelming mark of these Israelites was disobedience. And God was not pleased. Their faith, or their lack thereof, really, their lack of faith was evidenced in their lack of disobedience. And in seeing that, in seeing in their disobedience, they proved that they were not worthy of the promised land. They proved that they were not worthy to enter into the grace of God. And so, too, these things are written down as an example for us, brothers and sisters. Because there are those that call themselves believers. There are those that call themselves Christians. But their lack of faith is evidenced in their disobedience. They have no desire for him to be Lord of their life. They just want him to give them blessing. They just want him to give them the things that they want. They just want fire insurance more or less. But there has never been a desire for him to be their Lord. There's never been a desire to obey him. And in that disobedience and that lack of desire to obey, they are evidencing the fact that they are not truly his. We see it in Matthew as Jesus talks about that there will come a day when he brings all men to him and he separates mankind into goats and sheep and he looks at the goats and he says, depart from me for I never knew you. And they look at him and they're like, didn't we do all this stuff? Yes, but you didn't do it under my lordship. You didn't do it in obedience to me. You did it because it's what you wanted to do. And their disobedience is the fruit of a lack of faith. Their disobedience is the mark that they were never really his. They may have believed, quote unquote, but they never really gave their lives to him. They were never really his, and therefore they can never really enter in to his home. They can never enter in to his peace. It's one of the great fears for me as a pastor 
that there are those in our midst, there are some of you here that you believe, but you have never made him Lord. And there is a distinction there that is important. We must look at this book of Numbers. We must look at Israel and understand what the hymn always told us. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. I love that hymn. What a great truth that it speaks. That trust and obedience are needed in service to a holy God. Do you want to experience the satisfaction that Christ has built you for? The fulfillment of life that he has built you for? Do you want to experience the joy of Christ that cannot be explained? Not, not just happiness. It's something deeper there then it it requires trust and obedience. This is what gets the Israelites in trouble over and over again. It is either a lack of trust or it is a lack of obedience and sometimes both. And it causes them to suffer incredible consequences. And it tells a very distinct picture of what their heart really looks like. My fear this morning is that there are some of us who it is a picture of ourselves. And we are in great need of repentance. We are in great need of confession of him as not only God, but as our Lord and our King, the one whom we take direction from, the one whom we obey. So why do we study numbers? So that we may have a better picture of ourselves, so that we may better understand how to truly trust and obey a holy God who requires both. Of his people. It's a heavy thing to think about. It's a heavy thing to think about. So that's how we approach numbers. Okay? We approach numbers with this understanding that we are looking for examples so that we may live the way that God has called us to live. So turn over to Numbers chapter 1. That was the pre sermon. Buckle in. <clears throat> so, numbers. Let's switch gears here a little bit. So now we come to Numbers with this understanding that it's trust and obedience to serve a holy God. But before we get too far into Numbers, let's take a quick kind of overview, so to speak, so that we may understand a little bit more about this book that we are about to study, that the Lord is going to open up to us. First, you need to understand that the original title, the original title for this book is not Numbers. Now, that number, that name, that title for the book was actually given much later in history. The original title for the book is In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness, which is such a great, great title for a book. If for no other reason than we understand as believers, don't we, that most often this great, the greatest discipleship, the greatest growth in our life also often comes in the wilderness of our lives. It often doesn't come on the mountaintop. And so this book is called In the Wilderness. And the reason it's called In the Wilderness is because of where it takes place. It takes place between Sinai, the, the Mount Sinai, and the Promised Land. Okay? And maybe next week I'll, I'll try to remember to do a map. But it, it takes place from Sinai to, through the wilderness to the Promised Land. That's the location that we are looking at as we look at the book of Numbers. Before I get too far, though, I feel like we need to give you a quick update for those of you who maybe don't know the history that we're talking about here. So several centuries, many centuries before, 
what we're reading now, God approached a man named Abraham and he told Abraham, hey, follow me and I'm going to make you a great nation. And so Abraham took his family, everything that he had, and he followed God. And then there's lots more of the, all these stories. But Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac was the promised one. Isaac went on to have two sons. He had twins, Esau and Jacob. God chose Jacob. We'll get into the ramifications of that another day. He chose Jacob. Jacob was the lineage that he wanted. And so Jacob went through life. Later, his name would be changed to Israel, hence the nation of Israel. His name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, or the 12, 12 clans of Israel. In the midst of all of this, Jacob and his sons find themselves in grave danger from a famine. But something has happened beforehand. The 12 sons, or 11 of the sons, had gotten jealous at a guy, at one of their brothers, and that brother's name was Joseph. Joseph, they had taken, and they had sold him into slavery out of their jealousy. And so Joseph finds himself in Egypt, a slave. God blesses him through his obedience and his faith. Joseph ends up becoming second in command in Egypt. And because of his power, his prestige, and his wealth, is able to save the family, the whole family, including these brothers who he forgives, brings them into Egypt. And it is in Egypt, under the protection of Egypt at the beginning, where Israel becomes this great nation. They begin to multiply like rabbits. Okay, so the people of Israel grow. Pharaoh gets scared because he thinks, man, these people are becoming too powerful. He makes them slaves. And then a couple centuries after that, the people begin to call out to God, asking him to save them from slavery. Into that picture enters a man named Moses. If you've never read his birth story and the salvation of him as a child, you need to read that in Exodus. So Moses comes in. God commands Moses to go back to Egypt. He goes in. God um, begins to unfold the, 12, ten, the ten plagues, um, and eventually Pharaoh is scared out of his mind, and he says, you all need to leave. You all need to get out of here. So they leave. They cross through the Red Sea. God parts the water so they can go on dry water. So Egypt tries to follow them because by that time they've changed their mind. The waters close in. Pharaoh's army is destroyed. And now Israel marches out on to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God descends onto the mountain to meet with Moses that he may deliver to him the law. The law was a contract between God and his people about how both were going to act with each other so that God could be glorified through his people. Okay, you've been caught up. Congratulations. Okay, so you get the history there, all right? If you, if you need more than that, read Genesis through Exodus, okay? So God has them now at Mount Sinai, and he is preparing them to go on to the promised land. He is preparing them to go on to the promised land. So Sinai to Mount Sinai, or Sinai to the promised land is where we're at. Time, by the way, is an interesting factor. Last point that I'll make under this. Time is an interesting factor in this book. Why do I say that? So often when we read numbers, or really when we read any of the Old Testament that deals with narrative and history, we often think that chapter 1 is immediately followed in time by chapter 2, that there's no gap. That like chapter 1 ends and immediately the actions or the story of chapter 2 begins. That's not the reality. The reality is there's time often between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In the case of numbers, this is extremely important. There is a point to be made just in the way that the book is configured. In the first section, in the first section of numbers, which covers basically chapter 1 through chapter 10, 
that, t- that period takes place in about 19 days. Okay? Chapter 1 through chapter 10 takes place in about 19 days. Most of what happens in those 19 days is God giving Moses and the people final instructions before they go on their trip. Okay, you've experienced this if you've ever taken a family trip. Someone, usually mother, is barking out orders about these are the things you must not forget. Okay, and so God is reminding them, hey, we're going on this trip. We're ready to go to promised land. So there's 19 days there where that's predominantly what is being talked about. Then we have section number two. Section number two covers chapters 11 through 14, and it covers about a period of 10 days. Okay. So 19 days for the first section, 10 days for the second section. That period of time is from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. Okay, 10 days for them to get from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. At that edge of the promised land, God is going to command them, send some spies in, get ready, we're going in. And the Israelites say, we're scared. We're not doing it. And they disobey. And they suffer consequences because of that. Part of the consequence is that generation is not going to go into the promised land. And so God says, turn around and go back into the wilderness. So you had 19 days, you had 10 days, and then the third section covers chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Five chapters, okay? Five chapters for that third section. It covers 37 years. 37 years for five chapters. I'm not going to make a big point out of this right now because there's a sermon later. But when you act in disobedience, nothing happens. When you act in disobedience, you are wasting time. 37 years for five chapters. The fourth and final section is, verse, is chapters 20 through 36, 16 chapters to end the book. And in those chapters, we have the end of that period, okay? We have the end of that period of wandering out of consequence and to them getting right to the edge of the promised land. It ends with him giving them final instructions before they go in. The new generation has been born. They have come to adulthood. They show the faith and the obedience that the, first, that the other generation did not. And God leads them on the quest to take what he has promised them. Time is an important factor here. And we'll make mention of that as we go through our study of numbers. All right. So we've looked at why we're studying Numbers. We've looked at a little bit of the context of the book of Numbers. Let's look briefly in the time we have left at at Numbers chapter 1. We're not going to spend a great deal of time here, but there are some important things that I want us to see. By the way, we just read the first three verses, but I would encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter because certainly there are some important things there. You're going to recognize some of the names that are there. Uh, For example, you're going to see the 12 tribes that we talked about earlier, the names of the 12 sons of Israel slash Jacob. You're going to see those mentioned. You're going to see the population numbers um, there. You're going to see specific instructions about the Levites and some other things. And so I would encourage you this week, go back and read chapter 1 of Numbers um, to get a, a fuller understanding of some of the things that we're talking about today. A couple of things, though, that we need to see here. First, why... We, we see here at the beginning, Moses, 
being commanded to take a census. And then we see all these big names and all these big numbers. And if you've ever read the Bible through in one thing, you know you just came out of Leviticus that has all the law. And now you walk into a census and it's not exactly the most exciting thing in the world. Why, why is this recorded? Why do we have a census? Why is this part of the example that the Lord wanted us to have? Well, first, it is the fulfillment of a promise. We need to understand that the census here was so that the Israelites would under, and we would understand that there, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God had made. You'll remember in our brief history up to this point that God had came to a man named Abraham and made him a promise. That's first recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God says here, and I, God, will make you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all nations is the understanding there. It's the first picture not only of the, the promise that God makes, but also the promise of Christ later, which we're not going to go into great detail. He reminds Abraham of this promise in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Again, he says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So the promise is made to Abraham. You are going to be a, a father of a great nation of many offspring. Then he makes the same promise to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. He says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then he makes the same promise to Jacob. Three generations now. God makes the same promise again in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and north and the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed okay three generations over and over again god is making the promise i'm going to make you a great nation and yet abraham doesn't see the fulfillment of this does he when he when he passes away he knows isaac and he knows a couple of more a few more sons that he's had by some other ladies and that's it certainly not a great nation all right when Isaac passes away, depending on how we read the order of things, Isaac doesn't know Jacob's sons, okay? Isaac, Isaac isn't going to see the great nation. When Jacob, when his family goes into Egypt, when they are fleeing the famine, they are less than 80. They are less than 80. We're told in the Old Testament that it was 70. Stephen in the New Testament says 75. The description there comes from how you count wives, just so you know. Okay, <clears throat> yes, ladies laugh, okay? But so, there's a, there's a little bit of description. But no matter how you count the women and children, it was less than 80. Certainly not the number of the stars. Melissa's family, there's like 96 or some odd and when we, have, when we get together for Thanksgiving. It seems like the number of the sand at times, but trust me, it's not. Okay, this is not the fulfillment. They haven't seen the promise. It's here in numbers that we get the fulfillment. They do this census... They do this census and they find that of the 11, nation, 11, the 11 tribes that can fight, the Levites were not counted at this point, of the 11 nations that could fight, of the men that were able to fight, there were over 600,000 men. 600,000 men of that age. If we take very basic population math, that means at this point the figures of how many Israelites there were were somewhere over 2 million 
Israelites at this point. Okay, now we see the fulfillment of a promise. Now we see God has made this into a great nation. And think about all that they came through. They fled a famine to go into Egypt. They experienced slavery while they were there. They came out. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They came to the, went through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. All two million of them plus those that were with them, that had fled with them. God has done a great thing here. God has done a great thing here for the people of Israel. And he wants them to see the fulfillment of the promise because it leads to confidence to move forward. The fulfillment of the promise leads to confidence to move forward. Because remember, there are two parts of the promise. Part of the promise is that he would make them into the great nation. Another part of the promise is the land that he would give them. He tells Abraham several times, look around you. I am going to give this to you. This is going to be your inheritance. You are going to own this. This is going to be your home. And Egypt and the sorry, and the people of Israel had held on to that for generation upon generation upon generation. And now God is reminding them, if I fulfilled the promise to make you a great nation, I am going to fulfill the promise of the promised land. I'm going to take you and take you home. Just trust me. Just trust me. Lastly, we see here in chapter one, not only the census and the fulfillment of the promise and the confidence that comes with that fulfillment, but we also see for the very first time a picture of the Levites there at the end. We didn't read this, but there at the end of chapter one, starting in verse 47, God tells Moses that the Levites are they're They're a, a tribe inside of Israel that they are exempted. They are not to be counted because they have a very specific job. Their job is to take care of the place of worship of God. God's dwelling place among his people. They are to be the buffer in many ways between a holy God. And we're going to see this unfolded later. They are to be the buffer between a holy God and God's people who are still being sanctified. They are the go-between. And what we're going to understand as we go through numbers is a picture of the priesthood. And the more we understand the priesthood of Israel, the more we understand Jesus Christ and his ministry. The more we understand how he has become the priest for us, as Hebrews says. The perfect priest who intercedes on our behalf. The Levites had a special purpose, and it was to continue to make sure a holy God would dwell with his people. As they protected the people, as they did in obedience, what God directed them to do. So what's our example here? All of this is recorded. It says, Paul says, all of this is recorded for us as an example. What's our example? Three things really quickly. One, we need to be reminded that we serve a holy God who keeps his promises. As we desire to be people of obedience to a holy God, we should be encouraged by the fact that we serve a God who keeps his promises whatever those may be. If it is in Scripture, then you can hold on to it. If He has spoken it, then don't let go of it. Know that it is not just a promise, that it is an assurance. Second, we have a God who knows us. We have a God who knows us. 
God didn't need the census so that he would know how many people there were. He knew how many people there were. He didn't need to know the lineages of all the people. He knew their lineages. God needed his people to see the promise fulfilled. God knows us. He knows the hairs on your head, as we talked about with the kids earlier. He knows your likes and your dislikes. He knows your strengths. He created you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Who better to lead us? Who better to be our king and our Lord? Who better to obey than the one who knows us better than we know ourselves? We have a God who keeps our promises. We have a God who knows us. And we have a God who goes with us. So part of the great part about understanding the Levites is understanding how they continued to, to care for the tabernacle, the meeting place, the dwelling place of God, so that God may dwell with his people. And we should be reminded that now we are the tabernacle. Now God dwells in us. He doesn't send us out on missions alone. He doesn't send us on quests alone, but rather he travels with us. He gives us the strength to accomplish that which he has given us. I think often about how he has called us to forgiveness and the type of forgiveness that he has called us to is not a human forgiveness. It is a spiritual forgiveness that is impossible without him. You can't forgive people for some of the things they've done on your own. You must call upon him and ask the spirit to work through you to act out in that forgiveness. God does not call us to obedience so that we may do it on our own, but rather he calls us to our obedience knowing that we must rely on him to accomplish it. This this should be great encouragement for us. As we come to a holy God, as we desire to be a church that serves a holy God, as we desire to be a church that makes a difference in the community that he has put us in, it should be a great encouragement that we serve a God who keeps his promises, that we serve a God who knows us and works through us, and that we serve a God who doesn't leave us alone, that God that goes with us as we obey. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response this morning. My hope is, my prayer is this morning that we as a church would see these truths, that we would see these promises, these things in Scripture about how God goes with us and about how He knows us and about how He cares for us and about how He keeps His promises and that it would encourage us to follow Him more. This morning, I, I would just invite you to respond to that. Respond to a God that is holy. Respond to a God that keeps his promises. Maybe this morning that means coming to the altar. Maybe this morning that is something that you do in your seat or standing and singing with us. Maybe it's something that you need to do between you and God because you don't have that relationship. You realize that what we talked about earlier, that you believe in God, but you have never made him Lord. And this is your opportunity to respond to a God that invites you to join him and to be part with him in this great adventure that he's called us on. Let me pray with you, and then we'll have that time of response. Father, we thank you. Lord, we have covered a lot of ground this morning. And we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that through your word we can know who you are, that we can know more about you, that we can learn who we are, that we can learn how we can have a relationship with the God who created us, the God who loves us, and yet who is a holy God. Father, I pray this morning that you would 
that you would do a work in us, Lord, that we would observe your word and that we wouldn't just walk away from it, but rather that we would dwell upon it, or that we would let it marinate in our hearts, or that it may change us. Father, I pray that you would be in our worship this week and in this moment. Lord, help us to respond to you as you speak to us. We pray this in your great name.